Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I am joined for the first time in 2023 by Ben Simon. How are you, Ben? I am good, my friend, and looking forward to another good year. It's been uh, a lovely holiday break. Went to Malaysia and uh, back to back to get started. Well, it's lovely to get back into it. And uh, Simulcast listeners, this is our first journal club for the year, kicking off for February 2023. We've got some articles to talk about. And I guess in terms of news, Ben, I've got a little bit of IMSH FOMO. That's the conference, the International Meeting for Simulation Healthcare that's on every year in the US. But yeah, I've got some FOMO. It looks like they were having a great time. It did. And as always, I'm living vicariously through Susan Ella's tweets. So uh, she covered it well. <laughs> uh, she and, did indeed. Uh, it looked like a good time was had by all. Absolutely, yes. Uh, and I also enjoyed listening to your episode with Michaela Colby about some of the conversations that happen in debriefing and how to really get granular in analysing them. Uh, thank you for that episode. And if listeners haven't heard it yet, feel free to go back and listen to Ben interviewing Michaela about that article that she and her colleagues wrote. It was a great uh, conversation. Thanks. Yeah, she was a fascinating lady and uh, great work. All right. Well, I believe you're going to kick us off uh, talking about Confederates, but maybe not calling them Confederates. Uh, agreed. So the article is called Creating a Safe Space for Simulation. Is it time to stop calling them Confederates? Uh, it's by Carl M. Prixaitis. I apologize if I've pronounced that terribly. Uh, and look, this article is uh, in Simulation and Healthcare, and it's a bit of a combo article in that it's kind of an opinion piece from my perspective, but also informed by a modified rapid review to determine the frequency of the use of the term Confederate in simulation literature. And the authors explore some stuff that was news to me in that uh, the term confederate in the simulation sense essentially originates from the Latin word confederatus, which means leagued together. Uh, and I did think that, oh, that actually makes an awful lot of sense. They describe how that was actually adapted from psychological research studies and then leaked into simulation terminology. And they argue that its use should really be abolished given the overlap between the term confederate with a little c and Confederate with a capital C, which connotates the Confederate States of America. And given its historical ideology rooted in slavery and things like that, they argue that this may violate a sense of psychological safety for simulation participants. So from a quantitative component of the paper, this is a modified rapid review where they look at simulation uh, articles between 2000 and 2021 and screen them essentially for the word confederate. And overall, they found interestingly that actually, despite a number of articles and commentaries saying we should stop saying confederate, the term in the literature is actually being used with increasing frequency. And they did also find some alternative terms, including actor, simulated patient, and standardized patient, which I think we'd all be fairly familiar with as options. I have to say that overall, Vic, with this paper, I had a bit of a mixed response. And then I think that, you know, the authors are appropriately acknowledge that this is a sort of much more of a problem within the cultural, cultural context of the United States of America. And they do also acknowledge that maybe, you know, maybe a little bit reluctantly that we don't really have any reports of anyone actually being upset about the use of the word confederate. And there is 
maybe I'm being a little bit controversial here, but the cynic in me does sort of feel like actually people are pretty good at understanding that in English, two words can have different meanings and not getting too hung up by that. So I'm not sure the risk is that high of anyone experiencing a significantly huge psych safety breach, but I'm probably not the right person to ask. I do, however, agree that their theory behind this and the spirit and the idea that the listener or participant is going to be the one who has uh, control over how that's interpreted, not us. And so it's an easy, proactive strategy for us to eliminate the term and prevent that risk from happening, even if the risk is small. What I would say, and I suspect you're going to agree with me, Vic, is that they don't really argue strongly for a specific replacement term. And I was a little bit sad about that because it's one thing for us to say, let's not say this. Uh, but much like with the fidelity challenge, uh, we seem to be struggling with a word uh, that works as well. That's the trouble with a lot of words that fall out of vogue is they just happen to be very descriptive of what it is that you're trying to talk about. And I think you've hit upon the modern zeitgeist, haven't you, which is uh, some people would refer to as cancel culture. Others would just say languages in evolution. Uh, and context is everything. And we certainly know there's words we use now that we didn't 20 years ago and vice versa. So I'm with you. On a practical level, it just seems like confederate does imply a meaning that is precise and accepted, whereas uh, the trouble with actor and simulated patient is sometimes these people aren't uh, those things. So if you take, for an example, someone who is a nurse or a doctor who is then embedded as a simulated participant in the simulation, calling them an ESP or an embedded simulated participant is quite a long word, uh, but they're not standardized patients, nor are they necessarily actors, even though they may be acting in their usual role, but their, their role is different. I did think of ally. I thought that wasn't a bad one, but you're right. There's not easy pickings here to think about a uh, alternative and I have to admit, having read this previously and also thinking back to Paul Murphy and Deborah Nestel's article, which also talked about words matter, I do find now the Confederate word does kind of grate on me a little bit and I am finding and searching for another word, but I'm not sure what it is. Sim friend. <laughs> <laughs> I think allies got something to do with it because yeah. in, in it is a, I think it refers to being a friend to the scenario because yeah. I think that's really what we want it to be. It mm. shouldn't be in league with these nasty uh, simulation designers and deliverers who yeah. are just trying to trick you because I, I do think that is a connotation of it, uh, whereas I think the idea that this is a friend to the process, somehow uh, we have to get that idea across. It's very tempting for us when we write things to think everyone is in our context and you're not going to get the same reaction here in Australia to the word confederate. Uh, so I'm not sure necessarily how to do that, given that we have a global community. Uh, there's probably all sorts of things we say that are offensive in other places that may or may not be here. And unfortunately, it is in the eye of the receiver. Yeah, 100%. Uh, so uh, I guess we haven't solved that particular problem. No, we haven't. But uh, we, we appreciate the contribution, that's for sure. I yeah, think we've got so. to keep talking about it. And maybe there is a brilliant word out there uh, that someone will uh, write in and tell us or write in and uh, tell them. Simulcast, translating academic conversations to practical application. 
It, talking strategy, absolutely. So this is a paper from the uh, International Journal of Healthcare Simulation, which we've had a few papers from, but just as a reminder, uh, a currently open access journal. Deborah Nestel is the inaugural editor-in-chief and lots of good stuff being published in there. This article is titled Developing a Strategic Plan for a Healthcare Simulation Facility. And this is by Paul O'Connor uh, and the team from uh, Galway in Ireland. So the background for this, um, and I got on board with this very early on, lots of us in SIM are not really here for the business planning of running a simulation facility or program. We're really interested in the education or the tech or whatever. But uh, of course, we do need a strategic plan to guide decisions about what we do, why we do it, how to allocate resources. And this is recognized in most of the professional societies accreditation or, or guidance. And so this paper, as they describe, is guidance on how to make one. And they make the point it's not just for a facility, it's for any program. So for instance, in your emergency department, you might have a strategic plan for simulation. Uh, so they their method was obviously they drew on some things that they thought were good principles, but they used six exemplar strategic plans from different facilities and programs around the world as a, um, examples, which I thought was actually a pretty good way of doing it. Uh, they described six stages. Again, nothing earth shattering here, but makes sense. Firstly, define the mission, vision and values. And they give some examples of quoting verbatim from other programs there. Uh, and then probably the most important one is step two, strategic formulation, where you analyze the internal and external environment, who the learners are, who the faculty are, what sort of money you've got, uh, and you do some sort of SWOT analysis to decide on what are going to be your focus areas. So for instance, it's a much point at my Bond University uh, undergraduate medical program deciding that I'm going to do a big translational sim looking at systems issues in hospitals. It's just is not a good match. Uh, likewise, if I don't have access to a simulated patient program, building a big pillar around communication skills isn't going to be great if all I've got access to is mannequins. So I think this makes sense, but I do think the discipline of doing it is what matters. Uh, the next level down is the actual operational planning. So how do we turn what we think we should be focusing on into actually doing it. So what courses are we running? Uh, what are they going to be about? Uh, and then sections three, four, or steps four, five, and six are about assessing the results, coming back to the mission, reformulating the strategy, and also communicating the strategy. Again, makes sense, but I, I like how they've done that. Uh, they make the point in the end that they don't think this is the only way, uh, but as long as they uh, – people who are doing the strategic planning have a systematic, rational, justifiable uh, plan that's inclusive of stakeholders. They think it's a good idea. So they present it as an essay. And I think um, rarely are people so disciplined in a lot of simulation programs and it shows. <laughs> and I think it does go to some of the sustainability things. But uh, of course, one of the catch 22s here is you actually do need to be reasonably well resourced to do a plan in the first place uh, so it's a little bit of self-fulfilling prophecy here uh, and the other th point that I sort of drew out of here is do you need a plan or do you need planning and I'd say of course you need both but I don't think people want a plan dropped on them I think the process of doing this is as much as important as what you come up with at the end uh, in terms of getting people on board. So that were a few of my preliminary thoughts, Ben. What about you? 
Yeah, I was really, uh, I enjoyed this article a lot as sort of just like a, an essay of distilled wisdom, really, from people who are clearly experienced and have thought about this a lot. Um, that point you make about planning versus having a plan dropped on them is really interesting because I think that's both so true. And a couple of times now in large organizations, I've also seen this phenomena of um, planning happening over an extended period of time, but participants within that planning remaining convinced that there is a, another secret plan that is being dropped on them or being shaped around <laughs> that is going to happen no matter what they do. So it's really kind of nuanced, complex stuff. But I think there's so much teaming and um, collaborative spirit that can be generated when it's done well. And I think for me, certainly, I think I was very interested in in that paper and getting your opinion on it from someone who's much further down the line in terms of having fully developed a simulation facility before. Um, because I think for a, a lot of people who are stepping into leadership roles, actually this is a really nice paper, just a really lovely, like dense, but uh, easy read of, you know, this is a way that you can have a systematic and structured approach to this problem, which I thought was a really nice resource to have. Yeah, uh, I agree. It, it is... Uh, listed down there as a series of linear steps. And I guess that's one, I mean, it's very hard to represent it any other way in a paper, but of course it's not that lovely and linear. You've got to start doing something while you're still planning in my experience so that people can see what it is you're talking about when you're trying to communicate the vision and the strategy. Uh, and that's maybe the other thing that's a little bit underdone is the change management sort of thread through here, because particularly with SIM programs, I think there often needs to be a whole raft of uh, advocacy internally, externally, um, to, in order to get things happening. And uh, and building relationships is just so important. Uh, but I didn't think that was missing. It just I think that probably was implied, um, but it probably is is worth making explicit. One thing that I guess I further wanted to point out, I like their, as I said, steps, uh, the four, five, and six, the okay, sure, you've done your planning, you've got it all there, but what is then your strategy for assessing whether what you've done fulfills your mission uh, and then reformulating the strategy and then communicating it? There actually isn't any mention in this paper of research, and I think that's good because what I see a lot of people doing is after they do their operational planning and start doing stuff, they come up against this, oh, my God, I've got to show demonstrate some values what do we do i know let's publish some stuff and then people will see how valuable we are and i feel like it's a really inefficient way of doing that and most of us don't have very good skills in researching these big questions like evaluating a whole program uh in a sort of research strategy so i think people should do good evaluation and then leave research for the kind of things that you're going to be talking about with the next paper Sounds good. Yeah, great. Well, I'll, I'll lead straight into that. Um, so the next paper we've got is from the December 2022 edition of Simulation in Healthcare. It's entitled A Decade Later, Progress and Next Steps for Pediatric Simulation Research. It's by Leah Mallory et al. Uh, and a whole bunch of our friends and colleagues. Um, and so, look, as the title suggests, this paper is a retrospective reflection on the first 10 years of the INSPIRE network, 
as well as some thoughts about where to go next and uh, lessons learned. So for those of our listeners who are unaware, INSPIRE stands for International Network for Simulation-Based Pediatric Innovation, Research and Education. And it's a wonderful international research collaborative with the stated goal to improve the delivery of medical care to acutely ill children by answering important research questions pertaining to resuscitation, technical skills, behavioural skills, debriefing, and simulation-based education. And I think it'll be fair to say, Vic, that we're both pretty big fans of this organisation. And I certainly remember back when we were at IMSH San Antonio, how I was just taken aback by how lovely they all were. And I sort of accidentally Mm -hmm. walked into an Inspire networking meeting uh, that day with Mark Auerbach. Uh, And everyone was just frankly welcoming, caring, uh, and informed. It was a really lovely session. Something about you pediatricians, I think. Uh, take it out of your blood. Yeah, yeah, that could be nice. It's a, <laughs> it's a reasonable core value. Niceness. I think so. Yeah. It's a shame it's not shared by. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so this paper describes how in 2011 at IMSH New Orleans, a group of researchers who would come to form Inspire had a consensus building exercise to help direct pediatric simulation research. And their question for the group, which I really like actually, and heard this referenced in another uh, podcast recently, uh, was it is the year 2020 and we have failed to successfully use simulation to improve healthcare education, processes of care and patient outcomes for children. What went wrong? Uh, Which I've heard sort of described before as, you know, the break the organisation type uh conversation challenges a really nice freeing way of letting people identify real big threats to the organization so they came up with six key domains and formed a roadmap for the future of peds sim research and their domains were prioritization research methodology and outcomes academic collaboration integration implementation and sustainability technology and resources support and advocacy and so i'd have to say This paper was quite overwhelming in terms of the density of findings and thoughts and reflections and in terms of the breadth and specifics of those requests reflections. So I didn't think it was best for me to try and summarize everything. There is, however, a really excellent table two in there that summarizes both their goals, their reflections, lessons learned and ideas for the future. And I think it's really well worth just a full read. I think some really pertinent statements that are worth sharing from that include uh, the fact that, you know, 10 years ago, they clearly identified that SIM was expensive, that prioritization towards meaningful patient outcomes was essential. Although they still do acknowledge in their reflection here that percentage-wise, at least, there's still a lower than hopeful frequency of patient outcomes being measured in simulation research. From a lessons learned perspective, they note that there was, you know, the COVID pandemic identified the potential for us to rapidly shift in practice within the simulation community uh, when that is imposed by external factors and that was seen as a strength. They flag the value of qualitative and mixed methods approaches as means of establishing sound theoretical foundations. Uh, there were some clearly experienced researchers here when they gave tips like deconstruct aspirational research goals into building blocks necessary to effectively investigate the larger question and that quality improvement-based analytical methodology can be an effective tool to measure patient-level outcomes. 
They also did acknowledge some, I guess change management isn't the right word, but certainly in terms of organizational sustainability, things like establishing a clear leadership pipeline within the network is really essential. And establishing and maintaining ongoing relationships with other advocacy-oriented and corporate entities within simulation is essential. So certainly I felt like there's too much to kind of summarize, but just a lot of really nice wisdom and experience from which are very clever and nice people, and I really enjoyed the read. Any thoughts from mm, you? Absolutely. And I think there were kind of two kinds of lessons here. One was about research and what we should be doing and what is less useful and what their lessons learned were. And the others, the other lessons are about the collaboration and how, in fact, to get yourselves together so that you can have this sort of uh, scale and um, synergies. And I think that is quite an amazing thing. And it's, I was thinking about who else does this well. And uh, Pediatric Emergency Medicine Research in Australia is a good example. You know, having a collaborative really helps to, if that's for more clinical research. Uh, but also we saw this in the UK, they did this with COVID, didn't they? Very effectively. And you think about the number of people that potentially involved. Um, and likewise, the UK Emergency Medicine Research have a big initiative like that. So I think it is useful to have uh, umbrella organizations sometimes, uh, also collaborations. And I think this is a tribute to the collaborative nature of those people uh, who were involved in this, as well as obviously their um, research skills. But yes, as you say, it's, it's worth having a look at the paper, uh, particularly if you're involved in research. But I think everyone will get the idea about what the strong messages are. And as you say, really looking to rigorously say, not just is this a good idea, but is it worth it, is uh, something that not all of us have been game to get into. Yeah, and there's some really nice little subtle pragmatic stuff about nurturing excited new researchers to not look at a big question, but to link them in with another collaboration that might let them look at one chunk of that. Um, yeah, lovely stuff. Yeah, my favourite uh, simulation-based clinical systems testing work must move beyond cataloguing latent safety threats to assign actual cost savings with prospective risk detection and abatement. Uh, things we do not need, another list of 120 latent safety threats and, you know, I've been as guilty as others in contributing <laughs> to that. <laughs> no, yeah, there's some right. insightful comments that uh, pierce a little Very too close to comments, the heart yeah. sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But, I mean, and that's the good thing about a collaborative is that people don't necessarily blame other people. It's just, hang on, we need to shift direction here. And of course, was that wasted time? It wasn't. It just means that's now we know some of those things. We can build on it and narrow narrow it down. Uh, so yeah, it doesn't mean those things weren't useful when they were done. Absolutely. Mm. All right. So for our last paper, this is from Simulation in Healthcare, hot off the press, a paper from the New York Health and Hospitals uh, group. Enhancing safety of a system-wide in situ simulation program using no-go considerations. And this is by Antoinette uh, Miners and that team, including our friend Komal Bajaj and others on the author team who we've also had papers from in simulcast before. And the focus in this paper is on applying the no-go considerations for insight simulation that this group developed a few years ago. So just to sort of wind that back for people who haven't been as aware of that agenda, um, 
in situ simulation where we actually do this in the clinical environment is great for practicing in that environment, identifying the latent safety threats in there and the systems issues, getting teams together. There's many advantages, but there's also some risks. And that is that we might be all wrapped up in our simulation, that the patients nearby get neglected, get traumatized, uh, all sorts of other things. And we may disrupt system integrity. For instance, we call a met call to the mannequin and the real met call doesn't get Get attended to. So there are some risks of running sims. So this group, as I said, a few years ago came up with no-go considerations. And so these are uh, agreed by the sim people and the clinical leaders, the conditions under which sims should be cancelled, uh, postponed, moved to another area or rescheduled. Uh, and the examples of these are things like if there's an emergency that happens in the ward or if there's staffing ratios that aren't uh, amenable. Interestingly, Ben, a lot of these uh, no-go considerations, as I was reading this, I thought a lot of these are the reasons we're doing inside your simulation in the first place because we can't pull people over to the ward. So, again, more hashtag ironic. Uh, reported in the literature is a cancellation rate of between 50 to 30% of in situ sims. And when I say reported in the literature, there's two studies, but... Uh, and this paper was a look at the case study of this same group's in situ simulation program on cardiac arrest in pregnancy across the multiple sites at New York hospitals and healthcare. And they looked at if we apply these no-grow consideration, considerations, how many sims get cancelled and why. So their methods, they had 11 hospital sites. Uh, they ran in each case a cardiac arrest scenario and they were very quick. Like they said, they allocated 30 minutes, including some pack up time, do your sim, do a quick debrief, obviously with the idea that these were people who are on shift. So we wanted to limit the time. Their no-go criteria were pretty comprehensive and I was a bit surprised. <clears throat> Maybe I didn't entirely understand it, but it was including just things like having a cesarean delivery going on or a vaginal delivery in progress. Uh, epidural happening and I would have thought all these things happen all the time so I may have and they were just considerations they didn't have to cancel it they were just points of conversation uh, so they list them out in the paper for people's interest in this context of uh, labor and delivery um, uh, suite so they recorded reasons for the no-go uh, considerations uh, between June 2018 and December 2019. In that time, there were 274 SIMs scheduled and 223 were completed. So about 19% no-go rate, uh, i.e. they cancelled, one in five. But there was quite a variation. At one of their sites, for instance, they cancelled none, whereas at another of their sites, they cancelled 40%. And the reasons Staffing did seem to predominate, but a couple of times there were procedures that were going on in the unit. And even in the one that they cancelled, Ben, it looks like they often did some kind of education, uh, so they didn't entirely waste their visit. Uh, and their discussion in all of this is that they should be looking to, they made a big point of some smart scheduling, the lessons that they had learned that lent themselves to not having cancellations of their SIMs. So uh, I think this is a nice example of people building on the previous work they've done, applying it, and uh, seeing how these things do help. What did you think? Yeah, look, I, I uh, thought, again, that the discipline of just auditing, you know, rather than just publishing a no-go criteria and saying this is great, but actually going back and looking at it, checking whether it 
you know, what is the rate of cancellation? What is the impact on your service? Uh, really useful. Um, and then I also thought there was some nice little pragmatic stuff in there that could be really helpful for people wanting to roll out an Insight2 program. Um, you know, just little things like getting the demographic data through web survey links for the participants, engaging faculty to record online the no-go criteria and why it was cancelled. But I particularly actually like that thing you mentioned about, you know, essentially the step-down kind of ladder of educational intervention for the insights. So it wasn't just like 5050 and everyone bolts and runs away, but instead it was just like, okay, we can't do a sim. Uh, let's do some part-task training or a discussion or something else, which makes a lot of sense because it keeps you focused on what was the actual goal of that uh, intervention rather than just, oh, well, we can't do a sim, so everything's going to just fall down. Hmm. Of course, for me, this also prompts some uh, suggestion. We need to be very rigorously reflecting because let's say you're the place that cancelled 40% of the sims. That's a lot of potentially wasted time from faculty and others. So to my mind, that puts a really big spotlight on, well, did this training need to be inside you? If it was primarily about educating the staff about the processes, then maybe it didn't. If it really was, where is your equipment and how do you get it, then maybe it was. Um, because I do think if we're getting 20% cancelled, can we justify the resources that we're doing that? And I'm sure this team are reflecting on all those things all the time uh, because maybe if we've got a cancellation rate that's really high, um, then maybe this institution isn't ready for Insight3 Sim or actually can't sustain it. And they're not very good questions for us to be confronted with when those of us that run <laughs> Insight3 Sim, we would rather push on and push over the obstacles. Uh, but it, it may be that, um, you know, there are, is some need for careful reflection about is this the right thing to be running in a place that is stretched to its limit? I mean, I think it is. I don't, I don't think that's where this should play out. I think it should be that people in healthcare should have time to train uh but obviously that's a bigger conversation oh, absolutely love your thoughts all right well ben we've been so efficient we've got through our four papers and uh it must be that we are fresh from our holidays that we can be so <laughs> succinct right. and complimentary well, Simulcast listeners, uh, obviously we shall put up the links to these papers uh, in the episode descriptions on our website and on the Podbean site. Uh, do go and read some of these. They're pretty easy reads, all of them, I would say, uh, for the detail that's in there. And we will look forward to seeing you in a month's time with uh, some more Simulcast Journal Club goodness. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, my friend. Good to be back. All right. This is Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. 